Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. This podcast is powered by SportString. Your digital water cooler. Uh, we'd like to welcome uh, welcome everybody back to the Caught in the Net podcast and our first guest we chucked for after four episodes and uh, we finally got our first guest on. I'm excited. Our friend uh, John Townsend of the show. JT, let's uh, give us a little background, man, of where hey, you've been. How you, and... how you guys doing? We're doing great, JT. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. Uh, JT, I believe either in Miami or Orlando this week, right? I'm in Miami Beach. All right. Hey, did you play the any, ocean right did now. You play, did you play any two man this morning at the beach? No, I, I, I went over and did some drills. We only had <laughs> uh, we didn't have enough to play uh, two on two. But normally, uh, sorry about that. Normally, normally you can get some good games around seven, seven to eight thirty in the morning. Unfortunately, yeah, J- today it, it didn't work out. JT and his daughter are big beach volleyball players. But thanks for coming on, JT. We just want to spend a few minutes with you and uh, and talk about your career and, you know, players that you've worked with teams that you've been with, but more importantly, you know, why you teach the way you do and what's important okay. to you when it comes to shooting. So let's just maybe start off by bit giving the listeners a little bit of your background. Okay. Well, you guys, just, just from our conversations, it really made me, uh, you really made me do my homework. 
because, <laughs> you know, anytime you do something long enough, you have a tendency to forget, you know, where you started and, and why you started and things like that. So it's important for people to know where I'm from. Well, I'm from Lynn, Indiana. Lynn, Indiana is a town. I actually uh, got this on Wikipedia. It's a town of 1,200 people. So when I was growing up, I would be for certain it was under that. It was about 800 people. But according to Wikipedia, it's a, it was about 1,000 people in the 70s and 80s. Lynn, Indiana, it's wedged between Dayton, Ohio and Indianapolis, just a little bit north of Richmond, Indiana. So I grew up there in my childhood. You could envision the movie Hoosiers. Right. So so that's the way it was growing up where I grew up. Everything revolved around basketball. My school was so small, we did not even have a football team. So, you know, playing basketball was. Realistically, what you did in the summer, what you did in the winter, you know, and basically what you did, what you did in the fall. So my you love were Jimmy Chitwood. <laughs> I was closer <laughs> to Ollie, probably. <laughs> with as long as your hair. coach was a shooter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly so um growing up how i grew up there was there was a basketball shooting camp in the next town south of mine next town south of mine was richmond indiana richmond indiana had a had uh woody austin who played at purdue and they currently have had desmond bain who sure. plays for the grizzlies now he went to the catholic school in richmond but he's from richmond so there was a really well-known shooting camp in Richmond. And I applied to work there after my senior year of high school. The guy said, no, we're full. I can't use you. My brother-in-law was a counselor at the camp. So the following year, I was able to work the camp. And when I mean, when I say work the camp, it was eight weeks of Sunday through Friday, you know, all day, spend the night at the camp. And because I was a permanent staffer, all the people that were permanent staff, they had uh, housing for you. So we lived with all the other coaches. So I did that for two summers. And that really sparked my interest into why is it there's some days when I shoot, I don't miss. And then why is it there's some weeks when I shoot, it doesn't feel right. I couldn't make anything. And I think that's a common problem for a lot of people that play basketball. So it really really picked my interest when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. And then the following summer, I did not work because I was changing colleges, or at least that's what I, the way I remember it. And then after that, I came back and I did two more summers. But when I did these next two summers, you know, that's 16 weeks total. When I did these next two summers, I was one of the managers of the camp. So if there was any kind of disciplinary actions that needed to be taken with a, with a, player or a, a camper you know you had to call the parents any kind of guest speaker that would come in you have to coordinate with them make sure they were taken care of and just the day-to-day -day routine of running the camp so because I was a manager it freed up my time in the mornings and afternoons to stand right next to Dick Baumgartner and learn from him you know I went to him and I said look I, I really want to do what you do I want to learn from you. He was the best. So that's what I did. So every evening I was camp manager, but during the day I would, I would watch what he did for four hours a day. So the camp would basically, you would wake up, you would do drills, you would play games during the games. They had an auxiliary gym where they had evaluators. Well, an evaluator was like a master shooting coach. And the kids, if they weren't playing in games, they were supposed to come and be evaluated on what they needed to do with their particular shot. So I would watch Dick Baumgartner four hours a day. I did that for two straight summers. So I finally graduate college. I have a teaching job. Dick's daughter was the girl, the person that ran the camp. So I figured, well, five days a week, six days a week, two hours a day for 16 weeks, I was ready to be an evaluator. Well, the only problem with that is the evaluators made the most money and they did the least amount of work. So there really wasn't many places for me to be, but because I was a manager, I knew that they could have 
included me in that group. And I knew that I was ready. So I told the daughter, like, look, I want to be an evaluator. If I'm not an evaluator, I don't want to do the camp. So she knew I was a school teacher. She called, this was before cell phones. She knew I was a school teacher, called me in the middle of the day, left on my answering machine. Hey, you might want to find, you might want to find another job because we're not going to hire you as an evaluator. We'll hire you as a manager, but not an evaluator. So I said, thanks, but no thanks. And I went to work for Dick Baumgartner's biggest competition. Well, his biggest competition at that time was Shot Doctor Basketball. So Shot Doctor Basketball did camps all over the country. And I concentrated on doing camps for them in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. So it basically, I could take what I learned from Dick Baumgartner and take the the curriculum that shot Dr. Basketball had. And basically I was the master coach. I would show up and I would do shooting clinics for shot Dr. Basketball. And I didn't really like what they were doing. And I took what Dick, Dick Baumgartner had taught me. And then I started working with all these players and I realized that you couldn't, you could cookie cutter things, but only with certain ages and abilities. So then I started to really, branch off on my own philosophy on working with these kids. So when I would show up at these different locations in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, normally I would stay with the head coach and the head coach normally had a son or daughter that was basically like, look, I really want you to work with them. So I would show up early, stay late. And then that's really got me going with kind of my philosophy and becoming really into working with players on getting right. better with shooting. Hey, hey, John, how did you spend any time in college after this, or did you just go, you know, right into the NBA? And, and how, if, if that's, if that's the case, how did that happen? So the next step after shot Dr. Basketball, I moved, I was teaching school in Chicago. I moved from Chicago to Washington, DC or the suburbs of DC and I wanted to be, I wanted to work with kids on shooting. So I rented a booth, an information booth at Morgan Wooten's clinic in the fall to hand out flyers about, hey, this is who I am. This is what I do, basically. Morgan Wooten, you know, listeners, you probably know, uh, legendary coach at DeMatha High School. Right. So I show up and he's got hundreds upon hundreds of coaches there. He had college coaches and guest speakers. So then the following weekend, they had, a, they had a clinic at Gonzaga High School in Washington, D.C., all-boys Jesuit school, same league as the Matha. So I called that coach, and he said, yeah, come on down. So I went down there. He had 20 coaches there, if that. And he goes, I'll let you speak if you want to speak. You don't have to hand out information. You can just talk to the group. So I said, yeah, sure. So I talked to the group. And then when I was done, he said, hey, you know, I've got a player – if he can shoot, he'll be a division one player. Would you mind coming down and working with him? And this was in, you know, it was in October. And I went down there that day and I went down every day for probably the next eight months. And I just volunteered at that high school to be their shooting coach. And it was a, it was a really good experience because the level of basketball was so high in Washington, D.C., where you had um, all the players from DeMatha. It was the same league as DeMatha. So Ruben Boomshay Boomshay was in the league at that time. Um, at that time, it would have been a young Keith Bogans, a young Joe Forte for DeMatha. So the games were high level and competitive. And I just showed up every day and he would give me so much of my time before practice or during practice to work with the players. And right. from there, I went and then that's when I started working with NBA players because in the summer in an area like that, there were a lot of NBA players in DC in the summer. So I was able to basically what I did was I called the players association. Cause this was, this was back when the internet was just kind of coming out. So I called the players association and, and said, I wanted the agent for Ben Wallace and they gave it to me. 
So I called Steve, Steve Kaufman. Steve yeah. Kaufman gave me the number for Andrew Vi. Andrew Vi said, yeah, sure. So between was Ben the, Wall- Was Ben the first NBA player that you worked with? No, nah, like, like Mark Tillman and Robert Churchwell both played at Georgetown. So those guys weren't really, they were fringe NBA guys where they would be in and out for 10-day contracts. They were professional right. players. So I did work with them. Um, but he was the first real, real NBA guy. So yeah, I mean, he's guy. in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. So I, I remember driving down to Virginia You were his rebounding Union. coach too, right? <laughs> Me? <laughs> it, was, it was very interesting because, you know, pre-internet, the only video you had is if you got to watch him play. And it's not mm-hmm. like he shot a lot of free throws in games, but I showed up and did my deal and, and I hit it off with him and it went well. And then his college coach came in and basically said, ah, you don't need this guy. And then later, later that summer, he got traded to Orlando from the Wizards. And the Indian, he ended up having something wrong with his wrist and had surgery and, and nothing ever, ever came from it. But my relationship with the agent was good. And from Ben Wallace, I worked with Omar Cook, Chris Williams, who played at University of Virginia. You and, and Sweet Tony Chuck B- both worked out Omar Cook then. Yeah, that was one of Sweet Chuck's guys. No, yeah, I spent a spent a week with him in Atlanta once. So how how did how did all this you know morph into getting hired by your first NBA team, and where was that? So it, it morphed into the D League. Okay. So the the D League started in two thousand and one, and the guy that was the president or the guy that ran the D League is was a guy by the name of Carl Hicks. Well, Carl Hicks went to Gonzaga High School and was in the first graduating class of, you know, the coach that I worked for. So I called Carl Hicks year one of the D-League and I said, look, you know, the NBA Development League. I'm like, look, it's a development league. You need a shooting coach. And he said, it's too late. We've already done our budget. I'm like, OK. So I gave it a year and I messaged him again or I got him on the phone again. He's like we'll hire you as a consultant. So I was living in Las Vegas. So on Thursday nights, I would take a red eye to Atlanta and then either get on a a small plane and go to Charleston, South Carolina, Roanoke, Virginia, um, Greenville, South Carolina. And I did that for five seasons. I was a consultant for the D league to where it was owned and operated by the NBA and then it was branched off into private right. ownership. And then from there, that put me in front of a lot of higher level players, in front of a lot of higher level people being at those games. And then I was able to, um, you know, people would bring me into summer league. Hey, we want you to work with this player. And it went from an interview with the Blazers to an interview with Cleveland to an interview with Memphis. And, you know, that one summer league, I was the prettiest girl at the dance for a second, and I was able to leverage those teams and get a full-time job. What, what team was that, Coach? And talk so about your first, first team and, you know, maybe the couple of the players that you worked with. So my first team was the Portland Trailblazers. So I was there for three seasons. And in Portland, it was, it was a very, in hindsight, a very unique situation because in the city of Portland, they're really, it was a young team. So on that team was Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge, their second year in the NBA. You had guys like Steve Blake, Jared Jack, Sergio Rodriguez, Travis Outlaw, and all those, because there was nothing to do at night in Portland, they all came back every night to get in extra work. So it was almost like having... It was almost like having a, an extra practice session. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was my first job. And then from, from there, Kevin Pritchard was let go. I was out for a year. And during that year, I invented a, uh, a training aid for shooting called the straight shooter that eliminated any kind of ulnar and radial deviation in your shooting wrist. So I did that for a year. Then I got hired by the Toronto Raptors. Yeah, and that's and that's in. where I first met you, JT. Because uh, yeah, I, I was you, with Eric. Yeah, you were with our friend Eric Hughes, but I don't know if you remember, but you know, back in the in I don't know, 2012, 13, 14, 
when I was with the Clippers, uh, we, we would have these, you know, basically open gym workouts and Toronto would bring, you'd bring almost your whole team, not maybe eight or nine guys right. out to LA for like a week at a time. And that's when I first met you because you brought your team into our gym to work with, uh, to work with your players. And I, Valanchunas might've been one of those guys. Yeah. And I remember DeMar DeRozan. You, yeah. DeMar. And I remember you getting on the court and working with that, with those guys. And that's when I first met you. So talk a little bit about your time in Toronto. Well, Toronto, it was, it was really, really good because we were such a young team and working with a guy like Eric Hughes, who's a, who, in my opinion, is, is an excellent player He's development excellent. coach. Yeah. Yeah, but very similar where a lot of the families didn't move with the coaches or the players to Toronto. So what happened was my first year in Toronto was the lockout. Right. So my wife and kids only lived with me for a month, maybe. So there was all this time at night where you would beg to get guys back in the gym. And because your practice facility was in the arena, and hockey is such a big deal there. You would just kind of hole up in the arena. Now, the arena is connected to an apartment complex, a bank, a grocery store. So you really never had to go outside. So we spent a lot of time in, in the gym at night. And it was, it was really, really good. Then the second year, my wife and kids lived up there. And it was very, very similar. And we experienced living in a foreign country. We experienced living in like a, a pretty, pretty legitimate winter. And, you know, my kids were really, really young. We experienced kind of what we're living in right now, you know, very small space right? with a family of four and, and some pets. So it was a lot of fun up there. Then my last year in Toronto, when Brian Colangelo was fired, Masai Ujiri took over. They said, we're not going to have you full time. We're going to have you as a consultant. So I said, great. So we moved back to Phoenix and then at the same time, Memphis also hired me as a consultant. So there What's was the difference JT. What's the difference between like you were working individual clients before you got with teams like Portland and Toronto and whatnot. What was the difference in mentality with you working individual clients versus working for a whole team and then sort of overseeing the shooting for a certain amount of players of the whole team? Well, I think you don't, you don't know what you don't know. So for me, when I was working with individual players, it was like, man, I, I, would, I would really like to work for a team. But you don't know what that entails. So when you're working for an individual player, that's really all you have to worry about. Mm-hmm. But when you're with a, with a team, now you got to worry about, all right, who's coming in early, who's coming in late, coordinating all that. And then you also have to worry about, well, Okay, whose toes am I going to yeah. step on right. if yeah, I work yeah. Yeah, with this player? Mm-hmm. So right. you have to navigate, you have to navigate all of that. And, and the, the thing that, that I found out pretty quickly, my first job in the NBA was exactly the job that I wanted. It was exactly what I wanted. It was my dream job. My last job in the NBA was exactly the job that I wanted. It was my dream job, as were the second and third jobs that I had in the NBA. So I was always in the position that was the job that I wanted. I knew what I was and that was what I wanted. Whereas a lot of people are always trying to take that next step up from the video guy to a development guy, to an assistant coach, to a head coach. Right. So there was always, you know, if a player wanted to work with me and I knew that I could help them or if I felt like, Hey, you need to do this didn't matter to me if it was Caleb Canales's guy. Caleb Canales was cool with it. So, or if it was Eric Hughes's guy or Chris Babcock's guy, they would be like, no, you need to work with them. But, but not all, not all coaches are like that. Yeah. Some, some get very territorial, don't they, JT? Yeah, I, they do. And, you know, to a certain degree, I get it. I understand. But uh, to answer pro's question, it was, it was much more fun being on a team than what it was just, you know, Hey, I, I, I want to, you know, ask you or ask your agent, can I work with you 
right. it was it was different, you know. And obviously, the stability of being in the NBA is is much better than than doing your own thing, especially at a young so, age. So, JT, I think the last last two teams you were with, if I'm not mistaken, was Philadelphia and Memphis. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, and Philadelphia was is the most recent team you've been with. Yeah, Philadelphia yeah. was the most recent team, and that's probably been. And and you were there during the I don't know what what do we want to call it? Not not the tank thing, but the rebuild or the. Uh, the well, the, uh, what, they there. had a name for what they call it. Sweets. What's up? What they call that thing in Philly when they were trying to you know, lose those games and trust the, the uh, process. The process. That's it. Yeah. So you like were there during those years. Well, my first year there, they were my first year there. They had already let Sam Hinkie go. So I interviewed in Philadelphia twice. I told them no the first time and I took the job with Memphis because I knew Dave Yeager from my time in being in the D League. Right. So and I would I wanted to live in Memphis. I didn't want to live in Philadelphia. And I knew the practice facility in Philadelphia wasn't very good. I knew how expensive it was going to be to live there compared to Memphis. And I knew Memphis was going to be a good team. So, so I told them no. And I interviewed with Brett Brown and Sam Hinkie. Then the second time I came out, I interviewed with Brett and Brian Colangelo was already there. And he was the guy that hired me in Toronto. And then Brett Brown was the guy that hired me in Philadelphia. So I was, I went from, I went from Memphis to Philadelphia, once Jaeger got fired, the Sixers drafted Ben Simmons, and they brought me in to work with him. JT, common problem that you know I think most coaches see in development is, especially with shooting, is like multiple voices trying to talk to players about shooting, and then the non-communication with talking to, you know, everybody being on the same page about how you teach it. And it's almost impossible to have multiple coaches talking about shooting because I think everybody sort of has a different vision of what a perfect shot looks like. Um, what were your dealings when you were with the team with assistants? Don't, obviously, no names being mentioned, but was that an issue that you sort of had to deal with, you know, with the teams that you worked with, with just multiple voices talking about what they think that a player should be doing shooting the ball? Yeah, I mean, it's it was it was always an issue sometimes with assistants, but to me, the the people that got in the way the most were the general managers and the head coaches. Oh wow! You know, so so your timeline, you know, somebody now that that I've had seventeen seasons between the D League and the NBA, um, their timeline because they drafted a certain player their timeline compared to the realistic timeline of what you know will work. Then you got to compare it to, does the player even want to do anything? Does the player even like care or see the necessity of what you're trying to do? You know, eight mm -hmm. times out of 10, the player does, but there's, mm -hmm. there's some players who, you know, they just, they might not be as into it as what you are. That makes sense. That hey, makes JT, sense. can you can you just you know talk to us a little bit about? And we don't have to get too deep into the weeds uh, as far as technical stuff about shooting, but maybe the two or three things to you that are really important, you know, when it comes to your teaching. What are, what are a couple couple three things that are really important to you? So for me, I I always refer to the. Uh, there was a book written by Stephen Covey. And Stephen Covey, basically, one of, the, one of the lines or one of the chapters is start with the end in mind. So right. for me, so for me, I always have a tendency to work backwards from the basket down. So it doesn't matter if I'm working with a young kid or a professional. I work from the basket down. You work from the basket down, you can look and see, well, where's the ball going? How often is it going there? Is it going in? Is it missing left? Is it missing right? And then you can just, you can, um, you can work from the hand down to the feet. Which so is kind of opposite of what I've seen a lot of shooting coaches approach it. Well, I think, yeah, most people, it is the exact opposite. Yeah. Everybody's going to start from the floor up 
um, everybody starts from the floor up. And I just don't think that, I don't think that it works like that in my opinion. And I've, I've found success in working basically from the basket down, starting with the hand. You know, one thing that I learned as I was leaving Philadelphia, you know, having dealt with a guy like Ben Simmons, Jeremy Grant, you're, you're dealing with people that are six inches longer in their wingspan than what they are tall. Mm -hmm. So you have to account for that. You know, one thing I learned from a doctor at, at Penn Medicine was there's 29 bones in your hand and wrist and how that connects to your elbow with the tendons and ligaments becomes important as to whether or not you can get your elbow underneath the basketball. So, you know, the 29 bones in your hand and wrist working backwards. And then there's two things that I've developed over, over the years. And it's basically six things that I cover with shooting. First thing is measurement. Where are you right now percentage wise? And where do you want to be when you work out? The, this is one of the reasons I went up to Procopio. One of the times we played in Dallas was he was writing things down. He had a note card. He had cardstock in his hand. He was working with Dwight Powell on the court and he was writing stuff down. And I was like, okay. I, I found that to be very interesting. And I liked it because I didn't have the gumption to do that before a game but I did that in practice every day. And here's this guy on the other end. That's what he's doing. He was charting it. He was writing it down. So you got to be able to measure it first. Okay. Second thing is mechanics. Mm -hmm. So the mechanics, you could spend sure. five podcasts on that. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. The motion is your shooting motion going up or is it going at, if it's going up, then the basket gets bigger. If you're that, going that at, would, that would be a, a flat shot basically. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and then that, that, you know, a lot of that has to do with where you lift the ball to in relationship to the, the angle of your elbow. Mm -hmm. And then the, the fourth thing is maintenance. When you're good, how do you stay good? When you stink, how do you get good? What's your plan? So like Procopio just showed me his notes. Procopio had notes on the court in Dallas. You know, you have your notes of like, what's your lesson plan? My degree is elementary education. So I always have a plan, mm -hmm. put it on cardstock. I write it out and this is what we're going to do. But you know, we're going to do these drills and here's the reason why these we're going to get up this many shots based upon what I see based upon the time of the year, based upon your age, ability, strength, and things and, like and that. And the, uh, you know, the health of the person at the time, hundred percent, hundred percent where they are in the season. Right. You know, if you got a game tomorrow, we're going to do less than what it would be in August. Mm -hmm. Right. The fifth thing are mistakes. So when you start to deal with really good players, there are common mistakes that they make. So you want to figure out, like, are you going to fix the mistake in May, June, July, August? Or are you going to perfect their mistake during October, November, and December? So what are their common mistakes? You have to know that based upon the time of the year. Right. So those five M's measurement, mechanics, motion, maintenance and mistakes, all five of those revolve around mental. And they're all interconnected. Measurement is connected to mental, because if you're on fire and you're charting it all, oh, you're feeling good. If you're not, you're feeling bad. Well, how do you correct that mentally? Well, you can correct that through some mechanics, maybe emotion. That could affect your maintenance. Maybe it's a, a longer workout or a shorter workout. But all those things, measurement, mechanics, motion, maintenance, and mistakes are all interconnected with the mental side of it. So there's six different, basically, words beginning with the letter M that you can kind of go through and use depending upon where you are in the calendar year. JT, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought you were finished. I apologize. Go ahead. Bud. Well, and then the, the one thing that, that I talk about too, when I do clinics for kids, mm -hmm. that's, that's under the, the mechanics um, section is balance. Everybody loves balance, whether it's in tennis or football or volleyball, whatever balance is huge. But I came up with an acronym for the word balance with B meaning basketball 
A, meaning above, L, line, A is at, the N is for 90, meaning 90 degrees, the C is corner, meaning corner of your elbow, and the E is elbow. So basically, you know, looking at a guy like Sergio Rodriguez, Steve Nash, somebody that is a Clay Thompson, mechanically correct, where they can balance that basketball at the 90-degree corner of their elbow. So that's a little acronym that I, that I came up with for a coaching clinic a few years ago. But those are the four things, Sevs, that, that I would, okay. you know, in a nutshell with, uh, you know, start with the end in mind, working backwards, 29 bones, the six M's and balance. Those four things are, are kind of the things that I concentrate on. And see, w- one of the great things about JP is, or JT, excuse me, uh, he, he has a philosophy that he truly believes in. Um, and a lot, a lot of coaches, I think when it comes to shooting, they don't have, they don't have a philosophy. They don't have something that they truly believe in. Uh, and that's, that's why I like talking to JT because he, you know, he truly believes and he's had results positive uh, w- with his philosophy. And a lot of coaches that I talked to, I said, well, what do you, what are your thoughts on shooting? And they can't come up with anything. I don't know. You know, I like to get the ball here and the elbow here. Well, that, you know, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, Sweet Chuck, what do you got? Well, one of the major things I think that goes on in like a high school or college coach is when you think a shooter is shooting well, like in drills, they're shooting it well and workouts they're shooting it well. Their technique is fine and they're not, they're just stepping into shots during games and they're going through major slumps. Now, if it's not, um, if it's not sort of a technique problem, it's not an elbow problem or anything like that, but your player that you're working with is missing shots. What's your approach? Uh, should you change routine up a little bit? Is there something that you're saying to the player? What is it that you want to do then going forward to try to maybe get them out of this slump a little bit? You know, if it's not technique based, if it's just, look, the shot looks good. It's not going in. Are you telling them this to continue to step into shots? Are you changing some things? What's your approach, JT, on that? Well, I think the the first approach would be what are what's the shot selection? Mm-hmm. You know, are, are you dealing with a point guard? You know, and is is this guy shooting eighty percent of his shots off the dribble? You know, mm-hmm. is he is he a uh, ball dominant guard compared to? you know, a two or a three or, or a stretch four where maybe they're playing off the point guard and they're getting some standstill stuff. Mm-hmm. So it, it might not be a mechanical thing. It could be something with their feet to where the timing of how they catch it with when their shooting foot goes down compared to when they lift it, you know, there's things, there's things like that. But, but a lot of times in the NBA, when you're dealing with, with really good players, the NBA in college, Mm-hmm. In the summer, you can give them, in my opinion, two, maybe three things to work on. Right. Mm-hmm. But during the season, it's got to be one. So if they are in a slump, you have to help them get their feel back by referring to that one thing that you're working on during the season. So, you know, I could give you, I could cite two examples of two players that I've worked with this season sure. that are in the NBA, basically, you know, the the distance that they shoot the rate of speed in which they move you know your body does certain things just because of the length and athleticism of the defense so getting them back to their balance basketball above the line 90 degree corner of their elbow getting them back to that by doing certain drills Mm -hmm. into live play live play into certain drills live play into if you miss two in a row you got to do this drill and here's the reason why and if you can get them to buy into that, then you can change their mentality of, you know, the only, the only shot that matters is the next one. If you make it, the only shot that matters is the next one. You miss it, the only shot that matters is the next one. And, and always, as a shooting coach, you're always trying to coach yourself out of a job. Mm-hmm. You want to put the player in a position like they don't, they don't need me. They're fine. Mm-hmm. And if you do that. And the end result. I think if you I'm do sorry. that, you'll yeah, you'll always have them. 
I, I, I totally agree with that. I think one of our goals is that coach, especially when it comes to shooting is get to the point where they're their own best coach yes. and they don't need us anymore, but yep. they understand everything that there is to know about their shot and can correct it when it's not going right. So they don't need a coach. Right. That's, I mean, that's probably never going to be the case, but that's kind of the goal. Um, when we work with players, um, Sweet Chuck, anything else before we wrap up? Mm, let me see. I thought I had something else for JT. <laughs> yes. Oh, notes. yeah. Yeah, the problem, a lot of times that I see, especially dealing with head coaches, they're big result-based guys. And when you're teaching shooting, like, what's – I think the obvious answer is going to be whatever, but, like, process versus result. Like, if your player's missing shots, but it, they look really good versus, like – you know, if they're making, missing, do you know what I'm saying? Like coaches, like, you know, a coach, a player could be in a really good flow of things and then have a bad game. And then, you know, head coaches want to change everything that they do because, oh no, we got to get them back to perfect versus like the shots look good. Everything looks good. I'm not touching them. I might talk to them. Like, are you, uh, I mean, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Are you big on result versus, you know, versus tech uh, result versus technique or what's your philosophy on that? Uh, I think though that we we lived in a results based world. Mm -hmm. So what what I would do is every place I ever coached, I had a uh, a statistics board. Nothing with field goals, but free throws and threes. Mm -hmm. So every day I would keep you know a spreadsheet from game number one to game number 82, I would change the board in the playoffs, but it was always an accountability board of, Hey, you're at 58% from the free throw line. You know it. And everybody in the gym knows it. Mm -hmm. So then you didn't have to be the coach to say, Hey, come on, let's work on your free throws. They could see it on the board and mm -hmm. they kind of, you know, they had to kind of take some ownership of that because everybody in the, everybody that walked into the gym could see the board. Mm -hmm. JT, so, was that, is that is that board that you're referring to, is that for practice and, and, and workouts or is that games? No, strictly games. Strictly games. So okay. to Sweet Chuck's point, it's like you, you live in a results-based world. Now, if you're if you're a horrible team and you're doing, you know, the rebuild and you know you're in the moral victories, well, okay. That's that's great, but you still as a as a development coach, shooting coach. You have to project like this is what he's doing. He did miss a lot of shots and we're going to keep working at it. And here's what we're doing. Here's the plan. Cause right. you guys know, as well as I do, most teams that you've worked for, you've had to have a plan when the season ends, this is what we're going to do. You know, and you also for, for every, for every person that goes through a shooting slump, there's your, your backup point guard who's getting 12 minutes a game that could be on fire. Mm -hmm. And you know what you're doing is working with that player. So you also know the way you're going to work on or working with for the player that's in the slump, you're going to, uh, you're going to get them back on track. And I always tell players, like, look, life is a two-sided coin. You can't experience the good or the great without going through the bad. And you will be able to flip this and you're going to learn from it. So, and then you kind of go through like the, the six M's specifically the mental, Hey, when you make a shot, this is what you're doing. Right. When you miss a shot, you have to remember what you're doing. Right. Hey, JT, uh, hey, before we let you go and I, ha I, you know, we have to ask you this um, and, and I don't want you to get too deep into the weeds, but you know, you've been around Ben Simmons um, if you had to pick two things that he really needs to improve on, you know, mechanically, technically with the shop, forget all the other stuff. Let's assume he has a great work ethic and he wants to get in the gym all the time and improve his shooting, his free throw shooting, his mid red shot. What would the two things that you would say and, and point to, to try to uh, improve his shooting? I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but no, I, we've well, never been care. around him. You know, no, maybe I could at care American camp a no, little bit. I could, but. I could care less, man. <laughs> okay. Um, I think for for him, 
his ability to understand how to talk to assistant coaches, head coaches, people in the media, like, all right, I'm six foot 10, but I'm seven foot four wingspan length. Yeah. And, and with that, I'm an excellent basketball player. So I'm going to spend all my concentration right now on the free throws. Mm -hmm. So being able to communicate that to people, because the reality is like what I always told them, everybody wanted them to shoot threes. Everybody wanted them to shoot jump shots. I always told them like, you just got to make your free throws. That's all you got to worry about. And it was a situation with him where his first year in the playoffs, he shot 70.7% from the free throw line and everybody was elated about it. And when I'm working with him, because he was at 56% during the season. And, you know, I kind of called him out on it because I had a year and a half of relationship equity with the kid. And he was like, he came in early. I don't know if he ever came in at night, but he came in early and he shot really well from the free throw line on a lot of attempts that year. But you could see the wheels turning in his head. Like, how does this translate into an elbow jumper when they go under? Mm -hmm. You could see it, you know, and then his ability to just be comfortable in his own skin with he's right handed. Yeah. Mike Conley, Josh McRoberts will kick a football, throw a football, sign their check with their right hand. DeAndre Jordan was the same. Oh, okay. Ben Simmons is the same. So being comfortable in his own skin, I, I think that he's such a unique player and a unique talent that, you know, being able to talk to people about that as opposed to, you know, letting all that stuff get the best of them. Right. Will go into the six M's, the mental part of it. And I think that would help him tremendously because he could dominate a game mm -hmm. without shooting jump shots and making 75% of his free throws. Right. Yeah, you know, I, so I, I appreciate you going down that road because, you know, well, and I could, of, I mean, uh, I could a lot talk of times you, coaches get, you know, you I could that. talk to you. Well, it doesn't matter to me, man. I could talk to you about the mechanical <laughs> things too, because, you know, he broke his wrist as a kid. So, you know, his ability to be able to do certain things with his shooting hand is a direct relationship to where his elbow is when he goes up to shoot. And obviously his elbow isn't where it should be. Mm -hmm. And that's why he kind of sprays the ball the way he does. But I can only imagine because he's a good he was great to work with for me. You know, he was he was fine. Um, but I can only imagine what he went through that year in the playoffs. I guess it would have been, what was last season? Last season, right. right. Yeah. Because he, he basically cut that 70.7 in half. Right. Um, I think we've covered a lot, Sweet Chuck. Um, you got anything else before we wrap it up? Yeah, you've asked me that eight fucking times, and I keep screwing you on this thing <laughs> because I keep on coming up with something. But see how, like, see how he is, JT? But, I like it. Yeah. But JT, but JT has gone through a lot of stuff that I've gone through you know, with coaching and sometimes like you're in places that you're really valued and some places you're maybe your voice isn't heard as much as it should be. Obviously him being a specific niche of shoot, you know, teaching shooting. And sometimes when you don't think that that your voice is being heard enough, like there are assistant coaches all over the country that would listen to us. We probably have eight followers. So maybe they spread out in different, different right. States, but like, <laughs> If yeah. you're on a staff where the head coach may not value you as much as he should, or they just don't value you, period, how do you make it? Like, how would you, if you were in those situations in your career, how would you continue to try to make impact with the team having to go around that aspect of like the coach or certain assistants valuing your opinion or your thoughts on shooting? Like, was it like extra work? Is it just talking to players? Like, what would you suggest to a coach that, you know, doesn't really like, they don't really have complete buy-in from their team, but still on staff and still needs to make impact with their players? Well, in, in the NBA, I don't know about college, but I do know in the NBA, it's a player's league. Mm -hmm. So I did this every time I was on the bus. You go over to the game on the bus. Very rarely would I go to the game on the bus. 
mm-hmm. I would always be in a cab with a player. Yeah. But going over to shoot around or back from shoot around on the bus, if I was ever on the bus, I always made sure that all the players got off before me. Mm-hmm. And some guys were very nice and be like, go ahead, coach. I'm like, it's a player's league. Mm-hmm. Anytime I had an opportunity to say to them, it's a player's league. Nobody's showing up and paying good money to watch anyone coach. Or mm-hmm. ref. Yeah. I don't care <laughs> if you are the best coach in the NBA or the worst coach in the NBA. None of the fans care unless they're sitting next to the guy and they can kind of jaw with them a little bit. Nobody's mm-hmm. paying money to watch an NBA coach coach. They're paying money to watch an NBA player play. So I would mm-hmm. always tell the guys, like, it's a player's league. But specifically, you know, my job, your job, is were to get players better. So if I didn't have a good relationship with the head coach, well, mm-hmm. that's on me or that's on the coach. But the NBA is the most insecure league in the world, mm-hmm. right? So if I had a good relationship with a player, even though they weren't playing – And they could see that this player, hey, maybe he's improving with their shooting. Mm -hmm. You just, you never know how that affects other people because there were plenty of times where I'd go back in the gym at night with Tony Allen and Jermichael Green, but I would make sure that before practice, I had Russ Smith, Jarnell Stokes, and Jordan Adams. Mm -hmm. Well, people know the first two players I talked about. Right. Most people don't know the last three players I talked about. So for me, I would always just navigate it on an individual player basis because I was just worried about the players. If that coach doesn't like me, okay, mm-hmm. I get it. Mm-hmm. But I just kind of navigated it in the players, with the players, because it is a player's league. Sure. Perfect. So player relationships, got it. Yeah, no, that's great. Yes. No, that's great. Seb, I swear I'm not going to ask any more okay. questions. I'm done. Okay. Hey, JT, we really appreciate your time. Uh, you're you one it. of our favorite guys, and, and I think once the listeners, you know, hear how you break down shooting, they're going to understand why you've been such a, a successful and in-demand shooting coach. And Ooh, so we you, really you appreciate gotta, you coming on, JT. I'm going to leave you with one quote before uh, before we oh, sign boy. off here with okay. shooting. You got to remember: the more effortless something looks, the more effort that went into it. That's yeah. a great quote. That's great. Uh, we appreciate your time, my friend, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, have you back at some point. And I hope to see you down the road sometimes. It's been a while since I've seen you face to face. Yeah, you got it, brother. We'll hook All up right. soon. All right, thanks, thanks for thanks, thanks everybody. JT, uh, thanks, brother. Thanks. Thanks for yep. tuning in, and uh, this has been Mike and Dave with Caught in the Net. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 